Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. All right, uh, welcome everybody for another edition, a special edition of the uh, Yolitics podcast. Thanks for being with us today. We've got a an, an interesting guest today who always has a lot to say. Uh, and it is a familiar voice. We've heard him over the years, uh, depending on how old you are. Uh, he used to be at the helm of the CBS Evening U- News for decades uh, and was the voice that you heard uh, every evening uh, telling you what's going on in the world. And, you know, he hasn't slowed uh, slowed down since then. Uh, talking about lifelong Texan Dan Rather, uh, who is uh, going to be joining us on the podcast today. And Jason, uh, I know that uh, you've watched him a lot over the years as well, and listened to him a lot over the years. And we are going to have to get him to talk about some of his Ratherisms. So, if you know Dan Rather, he phrases things like no one else you've ever heard on TV before or on radio or on podcasts. You know, he has that all shucks type mentality and, and, and persona about him. Dan, everyone knows he's a Texan. He grew up down in Wharton, which is down uh, Highway 59 between Houston and Victoria uh, down in there. But you mentioned the Ratherisms and you know, he became even more legendary for another generation in the 2000 election between George W. Bush and Al Gore that was not decided on election night. And a lot of people are wondering if the 2020 election will be decided on election night. But Dan kept saying things on the anchor desk there at the CBS Evening News where he was at the helm of the national coverage. Uh, everyone's really tense and anxious, wondering, well, who, who's winning Florida? Who's winning this state? Uh, this is before we knew about the hanging chads in Florida. And Dan would drop little uh, little bits of humor every so often. He would talk about how that race is shakier than cafeteria jello or hotter than a Laredo parking lot. And, and it, it, really, it really broke up the tension, I think, that night. So we are going to have to ask him about that. But this interview, we're going to start about something else because he and his grandson have done something, Jason. This is something you found out about the other day. Yeah, uh, he and his grandson, Martin, they have this thing. It's called the Rather Prize. Uh, And basically, they are giving a big chunk of money to someone, anyone, who comes up with an innovative idea to improve education in Texas. Because as we all know, you know, Texas, you know, routinely doesn't rank so well when it comes to education. And so they set out on this several years ago uh, to basically challenge people in education. And I mean, they're talking about teachers, students, whomever, you know, can you come up with an idea that can be replicated that can actually improve things? And they're about to open their submissions once again. Uh, And so we decided to get them on the line to talk about that and then you know we wanted to talk to Dan too about some more current events and and you know he's not sitting on that anchor desk tethered to that anymore and and he's a little more free uh, to talk about what he sees and observes and thinks and uh, he doesn't hold back. All 
All right, so uh, let's dive right into this Rather Prize. Uh, for people who don't know what the Rather Prize is, uh, this is an, an educational grant that's given out, and it's an award that goes once a year. It's $10,000. It can go to a teacher, uh, an administrator, a student, uh, for that matter. Somebody who comes up with a great idea to innovate education in Texas. Uh, and this year it landed in Austin. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can't say it much better than you did. Uh, you, you got it exactly right there. Um, but yeah, last year's winner of the Rather Prize uh, was at Aikens High for a program that they call the Legal Eagles where basically they have high school students who help um, with very basic kind of legal matters like wills or marriage certificates or name changes. Um, and it's an opportunity to give kind of low cost legal services to the community um, while also introducing high school students to the field of law, which they may want to practice someday. Uh, really innovative idea, the kind of thing that can be implemented you know, across the state of Texas. Um, but yeah, this year the the past winner was uh, was Aikens High and their Legal Eagles program, and just uh, and these kids are actually these kids are actually being taught about law while they're in high school, and 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 enough so that they're able to turn around to the community that they're in and 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 help people with issues that they're having. So it's sort of this win win, and they actually have a courtroom, uh, like a practice courtroom, and all of that at the school. Well, that's exactly right, and this was the winner of the prize last year. Uh, the young man, the teacher who came up with this idea, because a lot of, of students decide when they're doing this kind of extracurricular activity at school, so the idea goes, some will want to be policemen, uh, police officers, some will want to be legal aid, some will want to go to law school. But the main thing, it gives them an appreciation of the rule of law. You know, we, we talk about the importance of the rule of law and the beauty of this idea, it had so many positive aspects to it. Uh, is an example of just what we're looking for. And of course, part of the reason we're talking to you today is we're now in a new cycle. We want people to enter the contest for the best idea to help Texas education for this coming year. We're open for invitations to have people, applications uh, for to win the contest. So that's the reason, among other reasons, we're talking to Zoo Jason. So how did this come about? Uh, let's let's back up and look at the entire Rather Prize itself. Uh, Dan, did, did your grandson come over and say, hey, uh, hey, Grandpa, I need $10,000. What happened? How, how did this uh, idea come about? My wife of 62 years fighting hard, Jeannie Grace Gogol, rather, from Winchester, Texas, when Martin got to be about 17, said a version of to him, Martin, it's time you start thinking about giving back. Much has been given to you. It is time for you, as, as you make the turn into actual manhood with your 18th birthday, we expect you to come up with some ideas of how we as a family can give back more and how you personally can. Well, Martin stunned us. I wouldn't say just surprised us, stunned us. With, he, he came back with a complete idea, not just something out of his head. He worked it out in his head, uh, pointing out that both Gene and I are products of Texas public schools and that we care a lot about what happens to all schools, not just public schools. So he came up with this idea. We were very proud of him then and have been since. And we followed through with the idea. And I'll give Martin credit again that he followed through. And last year was kind of a rough year for a lot of reasons. And this year is even rougher because of the pandemic. But he stayed with it, and I'm very proud of him for doing so. Martin, that's a lot of pressure, it sounds like, on you. Was it to come up with something to uh, you know, further the family legacy and give back? 
I mean, it was, but you know, at the end of the day, we, we thought this was just going to start off as something small. You know, we hope that we just get a few ideas, you know, maybe one of them, you know, can, can be something. Um, and now, you know, we've been doing this since 2015 and we've had some really, really strong uh, winners. And I think that's just a testament to how strong, you know, kind of the innovative ideas are in various different schools, various different places throughout, uh, you know, the state of Texas. We had a winner in Lake Dallas. Uh, Lake Dallas Elementary uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, you know, really smart ideas working with with younger kids and integrating them in their local community. Um, but, you know, it's really, again, uh, just a product of, of how great uh, these ideas are. And it's been, you know, a, a lot bigger than even I initially expected, but it's exciting and, and great to talk about it every year. You know, and as you all begin to uh, to take submissions once again for next year, I can only imagine what kind of innovations you might see just because school has been so disrupted this time around. But you know that out of things like this can come some incredible ideas uh, when people are really put to the test. I bet you're going to get maybe one of the best crops of submissions you've ever gotten. That's certainly what we're hoping for. I mean, you know, in, in disruption, there can be innovation. Uh, and certainly people here, uh, you know, this is a new school year. It's a, it's a new world. Um, and people are going to have to make changes. And we hope that, you know, the ones that, that really work, uh, you know, even just in one classroom, that people will go to ratherprize.org, submit that idea, uh, and we can showcase it and, and give them, you know, the funds they need to, to put that uh, in a bunch of different schools and help improve the system from the bottom up. Dan, we're, we're using Zoom here and we kind of talk over each other sometimes. I think you were about to say something, Dan, just a moment ago. Well, uh, I was. Thank you. I'm, uh, it is true that we kind of talk over one another, and I apologize for that. But I wanted to make the point that you know, I really feel that this year is especially important to reach out and say, folks, enter the contest, give it some ideas, because Texas education, as is the case with our, uh, our national education as a whole, is at a crossroads. Let's face it, the pandemic is making a big difference. Uh, it, it will reset the economy. We're going through an extremely difficult time with the economy. And coming out at the other end of that, they're going to be need to be ideas all the way around. And Texas education already was well behind what we wanted to be in the state. You know, last time I looked, Texas was ranked sort of 38th to 47th among state school systems. Listen, we're Texans. We don't want to be 37th or 47th at anything, much less education. But the point is, with, with the new economy that will emerge from the disaster that is the pandemic and this economic downturn we're going to need all the help we can we can muster to have our education system not only keep up but to move up and and be much better than it is now otherwise the state's going to go through more economic turmoil and trouble than it needs to i don't mean to be preachy about it but i really feel strongly about it as a product of texas public schools myself i will emphasize that we're open to ideas from anybody in any school, uh, you know, homeschool, parochial school, private school, whatever. I'm, I myself am a great believer in Texas public schools and the whole concept of public schools. But in terms of getting ideas for the Rather Prize, uh, we'll take them wherever we can get them. Uh, Martin has made the point. We're particularly looking for ideas with people who are actually in the classroom. So many ideas about education come from, frankly, politicians who haven't seen the inside of a classroom in at least 20 or 30 years. And what our experience is, there are people at the so-called bottom of the system who have terrific ideas, but they have trouble getting them across. And that's kind of leads to the question I had, too, Dan. You kind of touched on it. But I wanted to ask you and Martin, what, 
when starting the Rather Prize, did you go into it thinking that that Texas public education needs improvement? Was that kind of the, the, the genesis of it? I mean, I think every education system needs improvement. But when we first started out, you know, yeah, I think, as my grandfather said, Texas was ranked, you know, 47th uh, in, in some rankings. But really what, what we were hoping for is to get ideas that come from the bottom up, not the top down, to get ideas that are from people who are in the community every single day in a classroom, but may not have kind of the platform or in some cases the funds to spread those ideas far and wide. The things that might be working, you know, in El Paso, some places in Houston might not be able to just hear of them, right? And so we were kind of hoping to bridge that gap by introducing the Rather Prize. You know, every year the winner speaks at South by Southwest EDU in Austin, which is, you know, the nation's kind of preeminent educational conference. And so really it was about finding those ideas and being able to, to spread things that are working in one area to a totally different part of the state. And, you know, if that meant that, that the, the rankings could improve or even just other students could, could learn a little bit more effectively, you know, then we would have done what we set out to do. And again, it's ratherprize.org, uh, and, and that's where you can get all the information you need for submissions. And again, they're taking submissions now for 2021. When do the submissions close? So they close at the end of January. Uh, so you have a couple months. Um, you know, we hope people put in some, some really good ideas, you know, have some time to think about it. And again, the focus is usually on implementation, so things that can, you know, not just work in one classroom or one school district, um, but can be, you know, far and wide across the state. $10,000 up for grabs here, folks. If you or someone you know in education has a great idea, even if it's a student who has a great idea and it uh, can you know, be demonstrated to be copied elsewhere, it can be a best practice for other schools, uh, let them know just so not only so you can get the money, but so that we can improve uh, education in Texas. Uh, because, you know, as uh, both of these gentlemen have said, it can certainly use some help uh, here in our state. Yeah, I'm curious, too, guys. Have, have you all heard from any Texas lawmakers who might have seen one of these winners and said, hey, that's actually a good idea. Maybe we could implement that statewide. Have, have you all uh, had that in the past five years? We have, um, you know, frequently I think this has happened three times uh, when there's been a, a winner, uh, a local lawmaker um, has hosted some sort of function or we've been in an event where, where they've shown up uh, to honor, uh, you know, the, the winner of the prize. Um, we even had an idea now that I think about it, it was a finalist in our, in our first, I believe it was our first year, uh, which was to have uh, Texas lawmakers be a requirement of election uh, to spend at least one day in a public school uh, as part of every term, uh, which was a really you know strong idea. And it goes to show, you know, yes, we have one winner, but frequently a lot of ideas are really, really strong. Um, we have heard from from lawmakers, uh, you know, that are, are excited about either, you know, a local school winning. Um, I don't know how they would have felt about being required to spend a day uh, like in a that. single term. It is a good idea. But, uh, you know, I guess uh, maybe there'll be another idea that'll put a little more pressure on them. But but we do hear from politicians and, you know, I think overall that they're they're supportive of it um, because, you know, they get to to make laws all the time. And, and you know, they get to hear from uh, from their constituents and people in, in each individual classroom. Now, I have a question. When 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 you get these politicians who are calling in on the phone, uh, Dan, do you still I don't know, have a little bit of an itch to, to, to kind of grill them and, and, and put them to the test? Because, I mean, you're 88 now, about to be 89 at the end of this month, but it doesn't seem like you slowed down. Well, uh, you know, I, I pause because, first of all, that's a compliment, and I, I thank you for it. Uh, I, I, I myself, I, I never know quite how to answer that, but I'm going to answer it this way. But, you know, I... I I have a lot of flaws and I've made a lot of mistakes, but I love covering news. 
I have a passion for it. And as long as I have my health, I want to do it. I recognize that, you know, I'm, I'm on the backside of the hill, so to speak now, and, and operating at the periphery. But in my head, what it's a scene out of those old Westerns. I still think I can draw as fast as any man, but I don't mind having the big iron on my lap when the young guns come through the door. Well, you've got a young gun sitting next to you there, Martin. The, the, la- the last I saw, you were following in your grandfather's footsteps, uh, pursuing journalism. Is that still the case or what? Yeah, so I've, I've kind of mixed uh, journalism and politics. Uh, the next step, I think, actually is, is law school, unrelated to the, the Legal Eagles program uh, from last year, although I'm, I'm thrilled that they won. Um, but I'm particularly interested uh, in education policy and election law. Uh, yeah, I've seen that you're an aspiring, uh, you, you, you actually want to be an election lawyer? Yeah, you know, there's there's not actually all that many of them. Uh, it's a highly kind of technical specialty, um, but I really enjoy that. Uh, you know, I view it as kind of an extension of, of protecting democracy. Um, and I think, you know, we're certainly seeing in the news these days, um, you know, given the controversy over, say, ballot boxes, uh, right. you know, not to take a stance or anything, but, you know, there, there are some real, um, you know, issues and a lot of court cases going on about, you know, who can make the ballot when people can vote. Uh, and I want to throw my hat in the ring there. I don't, I don't know how far along you are, but uh, one of these parties may try to recruit you come November, depending on how close this thing is. Uh, this could get nuts. Um, and, and I'm just curious, uh, you know, Dan, you've covered a lot of these over the years. You've covered some really close ones, some contentious ones. I mean, we remember 2000 and how that dragged on for a good long time. What do you think about what you're seeing this year and the notion that perhaps, um, you know, the, President Trump hasn't said that he will uh, accept the results? I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, uh, this is unique. You know, every presidential election cycle, reporters such as myself are fond of saying, oh, this is the most important election in the history of the country. I'm not sure that's true, but this is one of the most important elections in the history of the country. It's unique in, in among other reasons for something you just touched on. We've never before had a, an incumbent president who refused to say that he would abide by the results of the election. It, just stop for a moment, whether you're Republican, Democrat, or mugwump, or whatever you consider yourself, how important this is, because in a, in a country such as ours, a constitutional republic based on the principles of freedom and democracy, the peaceful transfer of power at the top is absolutely essential. Now, through our whole history, good presidencies and bad presidencies, close elections and not close elections, there's never been any question that the transfer of power, particularly at a time of, of crisis, a time of pressure, the transfer of power would be peaceful in our country. We're not going to have the military with the ring of tanks around the White House saying, listen, we're not going to abide by the election. This has been our whole history. Now we have an incumbent president who says, well, uh, I'm not going to guarantee that. This is really important. It's important for us to understand it. It's important that we, as a people, as a society, we say, no matter what he says, we are going to have a peaceful transfer of power at the top. If that, if it comes to that, if Trump wins the election, a lot of people won't like it, but we, he, he will be installed as president. If he loses, he's got to go. Uh, I don't mean to talk this question to death, but this is there's very very few subjects, if any, right now more important than this subject. You recall, and you mentioned in the 2000 election, 
Al Gore had a very strong case of, of, to continue to say, listen, let's recount all the ballots. Instead, when the Supreme Court, in a stunning decision, decided that they would decide the election and that George Bush was the winner, Al Gore, you know how painful that must have been, stepped forward and with people around him saying, you got more of a popular vote than he did. And in a recount of Florida, you probably can win a recount. Al Gore did the big thing and stepped forward and said, we need this peaceful transfer of power. The country can't get torn apart with this. 1960, Nixon versus Kennedy, breathtakingly close election. When it was over, Richard Nixon had plenty of people running and saying, listen, we need to look into the vote in Illinois and Texas. We think we can turn this thing around. And Richard Nixon stepped forward and said, we need this peaceful transfer of power at the top. Uh, I'm going to concede. Now, that's our history. History is being put to the test in this election. I like to think that, frankly, the best thing that can happen is that there's a clear decision that it's not a close election. And whoever wins the presidency wins by an overwhelming majority. I think by any reason analysis, you'd say on the basis of what we know now, what, three weeks out from the election, that Vice President, former Vice President Biden has a chance to win big. If Trump wins, he's likely to win small. I don't like the portents, but I'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll get through this. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, both of you about something that, that I've kind of seen, uh, Dan, for your historical perspective, and Martin, from from your, um, you know, fresh eyes on this. Since President Obama was elected, gun sales have been through the roof. In the past six, eight months, you can't find ammunition anywhere. And then you have the FBI coming out saying they're warning of uh, domestic terrorism and white supremacists and, and things like that. Even let's say Biden wins, I, do does the opposition go quietly into the good night? I think the answer is uh, unknown. You raise a very good point with the business end. It's almost impossible to find ammunition. Somebody's buying that ammunition. You know, I'm an optimist by nature and by experience. I want to be optimistic about the situation, but. I don't want to be a fuzzy-headed optimist. And there is a real and present danger that if if Trump is to, was to lose the election, that we would go through a period in which a lot of people who've been buying a lot of this ammunition would say to themselves, quote, the election was a fraud, the election was fixed, President Trump told us this was going to happen, and that they mount uh, real trouble However, having said that, you know, this is the United States of America. We love this country. And I don't think they would be successful. A lot would depend on the loyalty of individual police forces and things like sheriff deputies. And a lot would depend on the loyalty of, of the U.S. military. I frankly had no doubt that that loyalty would be there overwhelmingly. It's not to say that there wouldn't be an odd person in a police force or maybe a few people here and there. But overall, I think we can be pretty optimistic about overcoming it if what you described develops. But I think we have to be realistic and say it indeed could develop. Martin, are you optimistic at all when you look forward to this election or, or what, man? 
I, I am. I am optimistic. Uh, you know, I think that's one of those intergenerational qualities, uh, you know, that, that makes us Americans. Right. Is, is believing, um, you know, in, in the good of what can come next. Um, but I want to add, you know, one more thing, which is I think that, you know, trust in institutions and trust in sources like the media um, is crucial, you know, to avoiding, uh, you know, some what could be some some very, very bad effects, uh, you know, depending on what happens in the November election, that people need to be able to believe that what happened is what actually happened and what's happening is what's actually happening. And you see that, you know, when there's a a protest or a riot, it may be relatively small um, and one group may cover it in a way where it's the biggest thing that's ever happened and one group may contextualize it. um, And people may be getting, you know, their sources of news from, from very different places and just have totally different frames of reference. So, you know, my answer is I I really hope so. You know, no one, no one wants violence. Um, You know, no one wants uh, chaos in the streets or anything like that. Um, but I do think that our institutions are going to be are going to be tested and I hope they can be trusted. You know, you, you mentioned the media there. And I wanted to ask you about that, Dan, because you were at the helm of the CBS Evening News after taking over from Walter Cronkite. You were there for 24 years uh, at the very top of the network, uh, which is the longest tenure in TV history. Uh, and and, you know, much of that time you. Uh, you know, it was voice of God. That's how the evening news was treated because you didn't have so many competitors out there. What are your thoughts about, you know, how media has fragmented and how media is looked at now uh, in this day and age where, you know, if somebody doesn't like what they're hearing, they call it fake. Uh, they don't they don't want to see your underlying facts. They don't want to hear the story. If it doesn't comport with whichever way they lean, they, they'll tune it out and they'll tell you that, you know, you're you're spreading lies. Well, you've described the landscape, the journalistic landscape, the whole media landscape uh, pretty well. The biggest change since the days when I anchored the CBS even used for most of those years, the biggest change has been the pressure uh, of deadlines. That, for example, not long ago, your average newspaper reporter filed once a day. He'd go out and do actual reporting, see people, make telephone calls write a story about four o'clock in the afternoon, that was it. Same thing with uh, television correspondents for the evening news, you do one story a day. With the advent of first cable news, 24-hour cable news, and then the internet, now there's a deadline every nanosecond. It isn't, you know, you, you don't have an hour, you don't have two hours, you don't have half a day. It's a deadline every nanosecond. That creates a set of pressures on every reporter that reduces the time for actual reporting and establishing the facts, which is the most important thing that reporters can do. You know, I'm now in the commentary business, if you will, and which can be valuable. Uh, maybe mine isn't, but it can be. But the, the spine of what the public and news consumer is looking for is someone who's an honest broker of information, who gathers facts, then takes those facts, analyzes the facts, connects the dots in order to get to the truth or as close to the truth as is humanly possible. Now, the public's confidence in people in journalism, that's actually what's happening, is being undercut at every turn. And let's face it, during the presidency of Donald Trump, it's been under the most relentless attack of any time in our history of any president. Uh, but, I, you know, what do we do about it? I think we as journalists, number one, say to ourselves, we're not perfect. 
we do make mistakes. And when we do, we need to own up to mistakes or explain how they got made. We have to explain that journalism is not a, an exact science. On its best days, it's kind of a crude art. Nobody can do it perfectly. And then also to do the damn job, do the work. The work is get the facts, analyze the facts as objectively as possible, and get as close as you can to the truth and then speak it. Have, have the guts, have the spine to speak it. If we do our job, uh, then I'm confident that enough people will come around to the idea we do need facts. That this whole Trump idea of, well, there are alternate facts that, you know, listen, some things are just true. Water does not run uphill. Rocks do not grow. Two and two equals four. It doesn't equal five. Some things are factual. If we keep emphasizing that, I think we'll be okay. I certainly hope so. Martin, not everyone has Dan Rather as a grandfather. What, <laughs> what, what kind of advice has he given you, man, that's stuck? He's, he's like this all the time. Um, you know, some people I think have a, have a public side and a, and a private side. You know, my grandfather is, uh, you know, so amazing in terms of every, you know, piece of advice and, and wisdom and, and idiom, ratherism, some would say, uh, yes. <laughs> that he gives. Um, and as you all mentioned earlier, you know, about to turn 89, I just hope that I'm doing half as much when I'm half that age. So, yeah, no so, doubt. And, and you know, Dan, you, you mentioned a couple of times mistakes and things like that. But I'm curious, you know, we all make mistakes. But looking back at, at, at your career, what kind of regrets, if any, do you have? Well, I, I have the biggest regret is that I wasn't as good as I could have been. I I, I, I I didn't, I didn't do as well as I'm, I think I'm capable of doing. Don't misunderstand me. By and large, you know, I've been so lucky and blessed uh, with my so-called career uh, that, you know, football coaches say you are what your record is. And I think that's true of journalists as well, including myself. So I am what my record is. But in answer to your question, that there were times when I just didn't meet my own high standards. Uh, I didn't make the extra telephone call. I didn't check out as thoroughly as I should have something. But, you know, I don't want to dwell on mistakes because, well, having said, I make mistakes, everybody makes mistakes. That uh, by and large, I've been, you know, really lucky and I'm willing to stand on the record. I recognize my record is not pure, but as I'm saying, under the coach's code, you are what your record is. I'll stand on my record, plus and minus. Uh, there it is. That's who I am. That's who I've been. That's what I've done. Dan, you, you haven't been sparing in, in your thoughts uh, about politics and, and your criticism in some cases of, of politicians, certain ones in particular. Do you find that a lot of people still expect you to be the anchor man sitting on the desk with uh, no opinions either direction? And, and is that hard for people to accept in some cases? You know, I haven't found that to be the case, that people do recognize the difference. Uh, that over the years, I've tried to explain and ask, and you know, I think people get it. That is that the, the bulk of journalism is, as I said, gather, being an honest broker of information, gathering facts, analyzing. So you're, you're a reporter and do an, analyzing. That's, that is the bulk of journalism work. But there is other journalism work. For example, there is commentary. That is, that what I'm trying to do at this age and stage is give 
put things in context and perspective, particularly historical context and perspective. But it's just I'm commenting, commenting. That's a different thing than editorializing. Editorializing suggests a, 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 an act, a certain action. Vote for X, not for Y. Vote for this bond issue or this is what you should do. That's editorializing. I try hard not to do that. Commentary, my, my sneakle now is, listen, I spent my lifetime as, a, as your basic trying to be an honest broker information reporter. Now, um, I'm not as swift as I used to be. I'm in a different role. My role now is to say I'm trying to give you some context and perspective and what I deal in a great deal of the time is commentary. Martin, um, obviously, uh, Jason's a little older here than the rest of us. He uh, talks about <laughs> watching the network evening newscast for years. No, I did, too. We, we all did. And, uh. and uh, you know, growing up, when we were growing up, Martin, it was the network evening newscast. And it was a morning paper. Uh, but as Jason mentioned, all that's changed. The entire media landscape has changed. I'm just curious, uh, where do you get your news from, Martin? Do you ever have a grandpa over your shoulder saying, are you kidding me? Don't read that. <laughs> so often, you know, I don't think we, we always get our news um, from the same place. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm big into to social media. Um, you know, I, I spend too much time on Twitter uh, and Facebook. Um, I don't watch the evening news uh, as much as I think, you know, other people may. Um, but, you know, I, I really think that between social media and then also just having conversations with people around you, you know, I'm lucky to know a lot of people who are who are journalists um, and, you know, have that sort of background. That's that's really what I uh, try to focus on. And um, but, you know, every so often I'll point out a news article maybe he hasn't seen. And uh, I feel pretty good about that. I'm trying to trying to contribute here. Uh, just for the record here, I'd like to point out that Whiteley is four days older than I am and always will be. Um, I, I want to ask you both, uh, where will you be on election night? What will you be doing? Dan, that used to be like, you know, the premier night uh, for you for so many years. And sometimes it dragged well into the next day and maybe weeks and months after that. Where will you be? What will you be doing? Well, given the pandemic, I expect to be in Austin. I expect to be in my home in Austin. I expect to be operating, um, you know, filing on, on the election. I probably will do some television appearances, you know, brief appearances on, on television uh, and radio. Uh, but, you know, election nights were always exciting. They, election night, in general, are the maximum test for any anchor person because most of the night you're operating without a script. Uh, and it, as you point out, sometimes it could last 12, 14 hours, sometimes even longer, stretch 18 to 20 hours. That's a long time to be on camera, a long time to be talking primarily without a script. Uh, I always welcome the challenge. I loved election night. And yes, you know, I, I'm, I'm long past missing the anchor chair most of the time, but election night, do I miss it? You bet. I would say, uh, you know, I think there's a, a new popular country song called Probably at a Bar. Uh, and I think that uh, I and, and a lot of other people, uh, that's probably where we're going to end up. Uh, so I can't say for sure, but probably at a bar. Well, they're opening back up here in Texas. Just stay socially distanced there, Martin. Yeah, right. But before we let you guys go, I'm curious about Ratherisms because the Ratherisms from 2000 were legendary, Dan. One of my favorite that's still stuck 20 years later is this race is hotter than a Laredo parking lot in July, something like that. Yeah, that I probably didn't one. do it justice the way the Wait, way you'd say it. I, I've got a list here. This is just from 2000. I, we think exactly alike uh, a lot of times, Jason, which is very scary. 
So there was the Laredo parking right. lot one. And anybody who's been on a Texas parking lot knows how hot that gets. Uh, indulge me here for just a few more. Uh, talking about both campaigns, you said they both have champagne on ice, but after the night is over, they may need a pickaxe to open it. Turn the lights down. The party just got wilder. Uh, this is uh, shakier than cafeteria jello. Anybody who's had cafeteria jello knows how shaky that gets. Uh, and then finally, this race is as tight as a too small bathing suit on a too hot car ride back from the beach. Dan, where do you get these things? How do you remember them? And Martin, does he talk like this just in regular everyday life? And do you pick this stuff up? All, all the time. And gosh, I tried to. But yeah, how do you come up with them? Well, many of them come from, you know, uh, my father was uh, worked in the oil fields in the pipe gang. His father did as well, and I did as well. And when digging ditches or pipeline, and when you do that kind of manual labor, that men try to use colorful language to make the time go by. And working beside them, beginning with at age 14 in the summers, you know, you can only say so many times, well, it's hot as hell today. So they tried to figure out new ways of saying things, hotter than a Laredo parking lot or hotter than a Times Square Rolex. Uh, so, you know, a lot of them just come from memory. That over the years also, when I would hear something, I would say to myself, you know, that's, that's an echo of my youth, but it's a new way of doing it. For example, uh, his lead is melting faster than a popsicle in a radiator. <laughs> Um, but uh, Martin is, is being very kind. He jumps on me sometimes. He says, Granddad, some of these things you say just don't make any sense. <laughs> They're dated. His favorite is when I'd say, well, you know, somebody would say, well, if thus and such happens, I'd somebody say, well, and I'd say, yes, if a frog had side pockets, he'd carry a handgun. <laughs> would say, what the hell is that? So it, yeah. It's I love it, though. Worth you know, it's, it's, there's no sense discussing if this so-and-so would happen. <laughs> right, because it's ludicrous. Whatever you're, whatever you're talking about is obviously ludicrous because a, a, a frog couldn't do any of that. He doesn't have, he doesn't have side pockets, so forget it. But I've given up trying to explain it, and Martin has given up on me. Well, well before we let you guys go, what, what, what's your ratherism for the uh, 2020 election, Dan? I um, do you have one yet? I have. I really hadn't thought it through. I'll, I'll, I'll have something for election night. All right. I would say for those who are predicting what will happen election night, uh, would say uh, he who lives with a crystal ball learns to eat a lot of broken glass. And for those, <laughs> and for those uh, uh, maybe in the Biden and Democratic camp, they want to say, listen, we've won the election. The polls showing you know, we're doing great, I would say. That old line of, um, you know, don't taunt the alligator until after you cross the creek. <laughs> I love them. That's great. I love them. Well, See, these are so good. I think you should just strap on a microphone on the night of the election and just let us listen uh, through the evening because he's just uh, they just keep coming. I remember 2000 uh, just being glued to the TV listening to these. Uh, uh, it was a real pleasure, uh, both of you, and uh, thanks for, for doing this with us today. And uh, anybody out there who's got great ideas uh, education-wise here in Texas, let them know. Uh, ratherprize.org is the place where you can land 
ten thousand bucks for doing and so. And yeah, uh, let me just add too. It's it's really commendable that, that uh, Martin, you want to do this, and and Dan, you're helping make it happen. That that that's great, and it's fantastic for Texas, and for the future of Texas too. So, uh, a salute to you guys, and and Dan, as you said, in, in my old stomping grounds and your old stomping grounds at KHOU in Houston, where we both worked a couple of years apart. Uh, a tip of the Stetson to you, sir. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you both very much. Thank you.